Last night we talked about six qualities of the perfect wife. And we used some examples from the Sahabiyat. We used some examples from some of the women that were mentioned in the Quran, like Maryam and Asiya, the wife of Fir'aun. And hopefully, inshallah ta'ala, we have just sort of a clear image or a more uh, vivid image of what we should be looking for in a spouse and the type of qualities that we should be instilling into our daughters, you know, so that we can produce a different generation of Muslim children um, to make sure that their experience is a lot more healthy than the experience that many of us have had. Trying to practice Islam in this in this atmosphere, this climate. Today, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to flip the script a little bit and talk about six qualities of the perfect husband. Uh, as I mentioned in the Jumu'ah, some of us, we come from dysfunctional homes where we didn't have male figures in the home to teach us how to be men. Being a man is not something that you just automatically learn how to do just because you are a male. Right. Being a man is something that you learn through observational learning, which was why some of the female companions like Umm Sulaim, the mother of Anas ibn Malik, when the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina, she brought her son Anas to come live with the Prophet ﷺ because Anas didn't have a father. Anas's father was mar- was murdered. Right. Anas didn't have a father. Umm Sulaim was a single mother. And. Eventually, she got married to Abu Talha, but Abu Talha was not Ennis's father. So she wanted Ennis to have a, a role model, a male. So what did she do? She came to the Prophet Sallallahu when he entered into Medina. She said, oh, Messenger of Allah, I don't have a place for you to stay, but here's my son, Ennis. Take him and let him serve you for as long as you need him. And Ennis, who he lived with the Prophet Sallallahu for 10 years, 10 years, he said that I lived in the house of the Prophet ﷺ for 10 years and he never once said to me, oof. He never once complained about something that I did and asked me why did I do that or something that I didn't do and asked me why didn't you do that. Never. And I lived with him for 10 years. So can you imagine living in a household with the Prophet ﷺ for 10 years? Can you imagine the type of person that that would transform you into? Not only was Anas there, you had also Usama ibn Zayd, who used to live in the house of the Prophet These were young boys who used to live in the house with the Prophet seeing him, right? Seeing him. So you had Usama ibn Zayd, who was the son of Zayd ibn Haritha, who used to live with the Prophet He was given the nickname Hubb al-Nabi the young boy that the Prophet loved more than any of the youth of the companions. Right. And he was a black kid. He was an African. His father was an African slave. Zaid ibn Haditha was an African slave who was freed. Right. And his son, Usama, was also uh, the son of an ex-slave. So it shows you that the Prophet, he didn't make a distinction between color. He didn't see color in that regard. You know, children were children and they needed role models. Also from the youth that was raised in the house of the, of the Prophet ﷺ was Ali ibn Abi Talib. 
Ali ibn Abi Talib opted to come live with the Prophet وسلم, instead of living with his own father, Abu Talib. And he lived with the Prophet. So the Prophet raised him. Which was why when Aisha was accused of zina, instead of going to Abu Bakr and Umar, some of his contemporaries, some of the people on his age level, he went to Usab ibn Zayd and Ali ibn Abi Talib and asked him, asked them, what should I do with Aisha? They're accusing her of zina, of adultery. What should I do? Ali said, you know, that there are many women in the world. Divorce her and go marry someone else and get rid of your, you know, whatever pain you're experiencing. And Usama ibn Zayd said to the Prophet, hold on to your wife. But why did he go to Ali and Usama when these were young boys? When he could have went to some of the elders of his age range. And the scholars explained that the reason why is because Usama and Ali grew up in his house. And when something is going on in your family, you want to keep it in your family as opposed to going to outside sources for advice because sometimes a third party kind of comes in and makes the situation worse than what it was. Right? So you want to kind of keep it in your family. Also, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was raised in the house of the Prophet so much so that he was able to walk in and out of the house of the Prophet at random. At random, another companion, he had stepchildren like Salama, who was the son of Abu Salama and Umm Salama. When Abu Salama died, the Prophet married Umm Salama, and she had a son. Their son's name was Salama, and he had a brother who was, whose name was Umar. And they you know, were his stepchildren. These were boys that were being raised by the Prophet. And this is Umar is his Salama's brother. And he's the same one who the Prophet was sitting down eating and saw his hand all over the plate, eating from all over the plate. And he said to him, Ya Ghulam, oh young boy, Sammillah, say Bismillah, Kul bil yameen, eat with your right hand, wa kul mimma yalik, and eat what is closest to you. And Umar, he said that that has been my minhaj for the rest of my life. <laughs> I, that was my method of eating, meaning saying Bismillah before I start eating with my right hand and eating what is, what is close to me. That has been my minhaj. That has been my method of eating from that point forward until the rest of my life. Showing you that when you impart this type of information on young boys, right, what you're doing is you're building in them certain qualities and certain behaviors that ta'ala they will carry with them for the rest of their lives. And this is not to mention, you know, the, the other youth uh, that the Prophet Sallallahu had a relationship with in the community, right? And so they had that male figure, right? They had that male figure. The only male figures that many of us have today is what we see on TV screens, right? And for every one black positive male image, there's a hundred other, you know, non-positive or, or negative images that we have to choose from. Like, you know, you have, you know, people wearing wigs and dressing up as women. That's not a positive black image, right? You have your Tyler Perry's who putting on dresses and walking around, you know, mimicking, you know, a woman, right? As if we, we what we're lacking is not necessarily female representation. We're lacking male role models on TV screens. They don't see that, right? Superman is, is a white man. Batman is a white man. All of our figures, all of the, the action heroes, right, are, are Caucasians. So we are the black male images that our children are seeing. 
then you come to the Muslim community, right? Where the, where the black male images, that, that strong positive role model image, where? You know, and I'm not saying that it doesn't exist, but as I said, for every one positive image, you have a hundred other negative images, which overshadows the positive image, right? The only thing that we're good for is making people laugh and doing dumb stuff, right? You got your Kevin Hart's and, you know, as long as you can make people laugh and, you know, you know, shuck and jive, as long as you can do that, you're good. But let anybody come on a silver screen that has a positive message, a positive role. They're going to overshadow that with a hundred other negative images, so it's almost as if, as if it's non-existent. So this is why it's important for our children to have these role models and to introduce them to some of the Sahaba, introduce them to the companions of the Prophet so that we can counter those negative images that they have with positive images that we have in our religion. Positive images that we have in our religion. Some of the Salaf, they used to say, Kunna, um, that we used to teach our children. We used to teach our children to love Abu Bakr and Umar just like we would teach them a surah from the Quran. That we would teach our children to love Abu Bakr and Umar just like we would teach them a surah from the Quran. So introducing them to these positive role models, these images. So with that being said, um, there are certain qualities that would make a man a perfect husband. And as I said yesterday, the perfect, the word perfect, of course, is in the eyes of the beholder. Because what might be perfect for you may not necessarily be perfect for the next person. But there are some qualities that are consistent in the Quran and in the Sunnah as it relates to what, you know, this perfect specimen of a husband should look like. So we're going to cover six, inshallah ta'ala. And this lecture will cover three. And then after Salat al-Asr, we'll cover the... Next three, and then after Maghrib, inshallah ta'ala, we'll talk about components that are necessary for building a healthy community. All right, and we'll talk about three of those. All right, so the first quality that I want to talk about that helps us to um, become strong or become the, the perfect gentleman or the perfect husband, right? And this is important for the women as well, because sometimes you guys, you make horrible, horrible choices when it comes to men. Sometimes I almost feel like we inherited the curse of our parents. Our parents made poor choices in spouses, and we kind of inherited that evidence by the choices and spouses that we have made. I, I look at that, you know what I'm saying, looking at myself first and foremost, you know, and we have to be able to, you know, change and break that cycle, right? Some of the sisters, you didn't grow up with fathers in your homes, or your fathers were in the homes, but, you know, didn't really pay you much attention. So we have a bunch of sisters walking around in the community that have daddy issues. Look, you have daddy issues. You're looking for that father figure. You're looking for attention. Some of our daughters are doing this now with the selfies. You know, you're putting selfies of, of yourself to every five minutes. My Jumwa flow, my work flow, this flow, that flow. Every five minutes you're taking a picture of yourself, posting it on Facebook. Keep looking how many likes it get, how many retweets it get. You know what I mean? Like, are you starving for attention? It's almost like attention is the new currency. All right. <laughs> Attention is the new currency. It ain't about money no more. It's about how many likes and how many retweets you get. That's the new currency today. And that all stems back to, you know, stems from that lack of having a male figure in your life. So the first quality that I want to look at um, that will make a man the, the perfect specimen of a husband is al-quwa, strength. People 
naturally inclined towards strong people. Right. And when I say kuwa, when I use the word strength, I'm talking about two types of strength. I'm talking about kuwa jesadiyah. I'm talking about kuwa jesadiyah, physical strength. And I'm talking about kuwa shaksiyah. And I'm talking about the strength of character. Physical strength and strength of character. Right. Because it's, it's no sense in being all brawn and no brains. Right. You, 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 you big, you buff, but you dumb. Right. That. You know, it, it it makes no sense in being buff if you if you working out on your body but you're not working out on your brains, right? You all brawn and no brains. So it's important that we combine the two. And every woman is looking for a man who possesses strength, right? The Prophet Sallallahu was given the strength of forty men, forty men, right? And that was physical strength. Physical strength. He was given the strength of forty men. That was the Prophet Sallallahu <laughs> All right, we're talking about a man who used to go to all of his wives in 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 one sitting. Go to one wife, make a ghusl, go to the next wife, make a ghusl, go to the next. I mean, you're talking about physical prowess, right? The ability, right? And and I mean today, you know, I think that we have a lot of that, but it's it's artificial. It's artificial strength. Right. We're taking all types of supplements and, you know, doing all types of things to make ourselves look buff. But there's really no physical strength. There's really no physical strength. Um, and it's a naturally attractive quality to see a person that is strong. Right. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala highlighted this in the Quran and the story of Musa. Salam. If you remember when Musa, when he killed the man, right, with his bare hands, he killed the man. Right. And if you look at Musa, there was a lot of similarities between Musa and Umar radiallahu A lot of similarities between their personalities. Um, Musa, he killed a man and then he obviously he went on a run. And he ended up in a city called Median, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran, the people of Median. Um, and when he got to the city of Median, he went to the well to get some water, right? And he noticed men around feeding their their camels and things and he noticed two women standing off to the side that you know for whatever reason didn't want to mingle with the men and feed their camels so what did Umar do Umar walked up and he took his drink and then he told everybody to back up back away from the well this is just his physical strength and the women are watching this right and then he told the two women to come and he fed their camels for them right and then what did the woman do? She went back and she told her father what she saw. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala captured that in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قَالَتْ إِحْدَاهُمَا يَا أَبْتِي يَسْتَأْجِرُهُ إِنَّ خَيْرَ مَنْ إِسْتَأْجَرْتَ الْقَوِيُّ الْأَمِينُ She went back to her father. She said, oh my father, hire him. Hire him. Bring him to our family and let him work for you. She said, because the best person that you can hire al-qawi al-amin is someone who is strong and trustworthy the best person for the job is a man who is strong has the physical strength and trustworthy and if you notice in many ayahs Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala especially when he's talking about like punishments he'll end the ayah with qawiyun uh, hakim or hakimun qawi uh, Meaning he's or Azizun Hakim. In many ayahs, he always, especially when he's talking about punishing someone for something, he'll always end the verse with two of his qualities. And most of the time, when it's related to punishing someone, he'll always mention Azizun Hakim. 
Azizun, strong, mighty, Hakimun, and the one that has the ability to uh, inflict or to establish that ruling. Because you can't establish a ruling on someone if you don't have the physical strength to do so. So you can see the, 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 the hikmah in mentioning both of these qualities at the end of certain verses. Hakim, And he is almighty, all wise. And it means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is azizun fayahkum, as the scholars of tafsir uh, say, that he is mighty and strong, so therefore he has the ability to carry out what he threatens you with. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala threatens us with a particular punishment, he also mentions that he is aziz, meaning he has the strength to carry it out. But when the woman noticed this quality in Musa, she ran back and she told her father. She said, Abiti, istajiruhu, hire him. She said, because the best person that you can hire is someone who is qawi, strong, and amin, who is trustworthy. And the woman, she, didn't, she obviously didn't have the strength to get the water for her animals. Um, so when Musa, السلام, he saw um, the opportunity to do that, he did it. And the woman considered this to be an attractive quality. Which is why she went back and she told her father. And eventually the father hired Musa, alayhi salam, based upon that. And eventually he married that daughter to Musa, alayhi salam. He married that daughter to Musa. So it shows you that women are naturally attracted to a man that has physical strength. That has physical strength. And this is important today because, um, you know, especially with fashion, right? Life imitates art. So whatever you see going on in the art world, you're going to see happening in real life, in society, right? So now you have men that are shaped like women. They're making clothes, they're designing clothes that men have to actually lose weight and actually, you know, transform their bodies to look like women in order to fit in some of these clothes. Some of these clothes that you can't even get in, you know, you can't even get in some of these clothes. They have a European cut to them, which makes you slim up a little bit so you can get into these clothes. Wallahi, you can see a man and a woman walking down the street from the back and you can't tell who's the man and who's the woman. He's wearing her clothes, she's wearing his clothes. How you wearing your woman's jeans? How you that slim? You shaped like a 14-year-old boy and you're a grown man. But, but this is what they are reduced. Why? Because especially for us as African-American males, they want to break that, that strong image. We represent strength. Understand that. I was listening to um, this talk show and they were saying that the average white person is in fear. I'm forgetting the, the, the actual term that they use for. They actually have a term for it in psychology. But the actual... Caucasian male and female, they are in fear of a black male when they walk past a black male like they would be in fear of a dog, a barking dog. That is the type of fear that they have. So they have to break that image. So they have to put us in tight clothing. They have to, you know, put us with funny looking hair. They have to put us with tattoos so that they dumb us down. So we, you know, don't look as strong because we represent strength. We represent strength. When you see a group full of African-American men standing on the street corner, that is intimidating. Make no mistake about it. That is intimidating. Even to some of us as black males, we are intimidated when we see a group of African-American men walking in a particular direction towards us. It is intimidating, without a doubt. 
And they may not, they may be good kids, they may be okay kids, but just that demeanor, just that out, that external, it just looks intimidating. Especially if you're already docile, you know? So they wanna kinda dumb you down and make you look a little less intimidating, right? Which is why they, you know, make you shave all of your facial hair. When you get into certain positions, right, in life, they wanna make you look as feminine as possible so that they can feel comfortable around you. So they can feel comfortable around you. They don't have to feel threatened around you. And unfortunately, they do it to our women, too, because women, you go after the pretty looking guys. You don't want manly men. You know, you go after that. The light skin, the good hair, you know, that's what you want. Right. But, the, you know, I think you guys get my point. Right? You get my point. <laughs> Because if I go any further, I'm going, I'm going to end up saying some stuff that uh, I think some of you guys are probably not ready to hear. Um, so that's what I mean when I'm talking about physical strength, right? Um, and as I mentioned, the Prophet wasallam, he was given the strength of 40 men. Not only that, physical strength is one of the characteristics that have to be present in a man in order for him to, be, to qualify for marriage. The Prophet وسلم, said to the youth of the Sahaba, Ya ma'ashara shabab, He said, Oh, you group of young men. He's talking to the men in his community, right? Which shows us that even during the time of the Prophet, وسلم, he put emphasis on getting people married, the young men in the community. He can't address the young women because the young women in the community, they had fathers. And the fathers are the wali and they determine when their daughters are ready to get married. But when you have young males that are converting to Islam, right, and they just in the community freely, no responsibility or whatever, it becomes the leadership's responsibility to make sure that we take that energy and we take that energy and we put it in the right place. All right. So letting our young men run freely, loosely, irresponsibly in the community without encouraging them to, to get married, we are doing them a disservice. He said, oh, group of young men, he gathered the young men in the community together. Yeah, oh, you group of young men, whoever from amongst you has the ability to get married, then let him do so. Shaykh Uthaymin rahimahullah ta'ala, he said the word al-ba'ah, man istata'a minkum al-ba'ah. The word al-ba'ah, yani istata'ah, it means to have the ability, the, the ability to get married. What does he mean by the ability? Shaykh Uthaymin rahimahullah ta'ala said the ability comprises of three things. Quwwata al-jasadiyah, wa quwwata al-maliyah, wa quwwata al-diniyah. It is physical strength to get married. Because if you don't have the physical strength to satisfy a woman, then you don't qualify for marriage. Make no mistake about it. How are you looking to take on a second or third wife and you're not even satisfying your first wife? How? You have brothers, oh, I'm looking to take another wife. And then, you know, when you get them in the counseling session, the, the wife is complaining that, you know, we don't, we're only intimate once a month. And you, you're looking to take on another wife. At least satisfy this first. As the scholars say, you know, uthbutul arashtum mankush. You know, you know, make sure your, your throne is firmly attached to the ground before you sit down, right? Because you might sit down on a, on a wobbly leg and the whole thing crumble on you, right? And some brothers do this, you know, with their marriages, you know? So you have the physical strength to get married. You have the financial ability to get married. 
You have the financial ability to get married. That 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 is part of that is part of the equation. The Prophet disqualified some of the Sahaba because financially they did not have it to get married. When Fatima bin Tuqais came to the Prophet and said, Muawiyah proposed to me and Abu Jahan proposed to me. She said, he said, as for Muawiyah, he's poor, he doesn't have any money, don't marry him. Right? You say that about a brother today, and that is his situation, he will be highly upset, highly offended. If a sister came to me today and said, oh, brother such and such wants to marry me, and I know brother such and such's financial situation, I say, no, don't marry him, he, doesn't, he, can't, he can't afford to take care of you. When the word get back to him, he's going to approach me. Or he might not say anything to me, but yet and still, he, he feels in some type of way about me. But that's your situation. Why are you mad? Don't, uh, does, does it, don't we have a right when a Muslim comes to us for sincere advice to give them a sincere advice? Would you think I was just going to overlook that because you was my man? No, nah, that don't have nothing to do with it. That has absolutely nothing to do with it. The Prophet ﷺ, although he loved his companions, his love for his companions did not make him overlook whatever shortcomings they had. He called the spade the spade. Like it, who like it, don't like it, who don't like it. But I have an obligation as a leader not to put women in situations where they're going to be abused or taken advantage of. He said, as for Muawiyah, Sa'iluk, la malala. He's poor, he doesn't have any money, don't marry him. He said, as for Abu Jahm, he beats his women, don't marry him either. She said, well, who should I marry? He said, Inkihi Usama ibn Zayd. Marry Usama ibn Zayd. Marry Usama ibn Zayd. So having the financial capability and the third one is having the religious capability to get married. If you don't know the, the ahkam of, of nikah, if you don't know the Islamic rulings regarding marriage, you don't qualify for marriage. If I ask you what is the rights of the woman, what is the rights of the man, and you can't give me the rights Islamically, you can't give me any of the Islamic rulings regarding marriage, then you don't qualify for marriage. Just like if I told you to tell me the ahkam of tajweed, right? If you want to lead the salat, and I tell you to recite al-Fatiha for me, and you chip al-Fatiha up, you can't lead the salat. I'm sorry. That's just the way it goes Islamically. If you can't give me the ahkam, the rulings of salat, what happens if this happened? What happens if that happened? What happens if this happened? Right? And I don't care how much, how much Qur'an you know. You might be half with Qur'an, but you don't know the ahkam of salat. But then there's someone who does know the ahkam of salat, but he only knows a few surahs. He gets to lead the salat and not you. Because it's not about how much Qur'an you know, it's about how much you know of the ahkam of salat. Because you can memorize the whole Qur'an, but if you don't know what to do in certain situations regarding the salat, then you don't qualify to lead the salat. And the same thing applies with marriage. How are you going to get married and you don't know the, the basics of marriage? What are, what are the arakan of nikah? What are the pillars of marriage? Right? We, we know the pillars of salat. We know the pillars of hajj, the pillars of, of fasting. What are the pillars of nikah, of marriage? You can't tell me, but you're ready to get married. He said, as for Muawiyah, he's poor, don't marry him. As for Abu Jahm, he beats his women, don't marry him either. So the point that I'm making is that when the Prophet said, Whoever from amongst you has the ability, the ability means three things. Number one, you have the physical strength to get married. People have gotten divorced in Islam because they could not satisfy their wives. The famous hadith of the wife of Thabit ibn Qais. 
right? Hadith is in Sahih al-Bukhari, in the chapter of marriage. Fatiha, this woman, she came to the Prophet sallallahu and she said, "Inni la u'ibu ala thab fi dinihi wa la fi khuduqihi, lakinni akra al-kufr ba'd al-Islam." She said, "I don't have any problem with thabit as it relates to his deen or his character. I don't have any problem with that." She said, "But." She said that he's only, he only has like this. And she took her garment, right? I'm going to show you what she did. She took her garment and she put it in her hand. And the garment just flapped down like this. That's, that's what he's working with. Meaning he was impotent. He wasn't sexually able to satisfy her. And she wanted out of the relationship. And the Prophet ﷺ asked her, can you give him back what he gave you as a dowry? He gave her a garden as a dowry. The Prophet ﷺ said, can you return his garden to him that he gave you as a dowry? She said, I can give him his garden back and more. I want out. The Prophet ﷺ went to Thabit and said, He said, oh Thabit, take the garden back that you gave her as a dowry in exchange for you to let her go from the marriage. This was the first khulah that was ever granted in Islam. And it was because the man wasn't physically able to satisfy his woman. And I'm just going to keep it real with you. For some of us, our women just, they just tolerate. <laughs> they just patient with the situation. But this goes on in many marriages. And unfortunately, more so with the younger brothers than with the older brothers. And I find that kind of strange, right? And it goes back to the artificial strength that I'm talking about. That artificial strength, because everything in this era that we're living in right now is fake. Everything. It's all artificial. So that physical strength is something that is attractive and is something that um, we should be working on. You know, we should be a society of men. We should be exercising. We should be doing those things that Islam encourages. Eating healthy, eating halal, which is another issue for us. Eating halal. Many of us don't eat halal. We still eat in McDonald's. How are you still eating McDonald's? No pun intended. But some of McDonald's food is not even real food. Not even fit for human consumption. Serious. And we still eating this stuff. Then you wonder why you got high blood pressure. You wonder why you have diabetes. You wonder why you have this and you have that. We don't take into consideration. We don't read labels. High fructose syrup. Stay away from that stuff. In the juices, in the syrup that we use on pancakes and all this other stuff. Stop using that stuff. Organic. Use organic stuff. Use halal stuff. It may cost a little bit more money, and it's sad because places like Whole Foods and you know these places that have these you know that have this good food, they don't put that stuff in the hood. You gotta travel out to the suburbs to go get that. But if you care about your family and the type of food that you feed your family, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. And as men, we should put emphasis on the type of food that we put into our bodies, right? We should be taking dietary supplements. You over 40, you should be going back and forth to the doctor, getting your colon checked, making sure you've taken physicals, making sure you're getting your blood pressure checked, making sure you are, you are okay physically. This is one of the questions that I ask the couples when they have physically, how, how healthy are you? How healthy are you? Or oh, I'm all right, I, you know, I don't have no problems. When was the last time you went to the doctor? How do you know you are right? You don't even go to the doctor. 
Physical strength, we have to make sure that we put emphasis on that. Then the second part of strength is the strength of character. The strength of character. Because it makes no sense having all brawn and no brains. The Prophet ﷺ said, That the strong person is not the one who can wrestle someone to the ground. But the strong person is the one that can control himself when he gets angry. This is the strength of character that I'm talking about. The one who knows how to have discipline. To discipline himself when he gets angry, when he gets upset, he knows how to have control over himself. So the Prophet is saying that strength, physical strength means nothing if you can't combine that with the strength of character. That the shadid, the strong person is not the one who can wrestle someone to the ground. But the strong person is the one that can control himself when he becomes angry. Another form of strength of character is when a person has conviction about what he believes in. When a woman sees that a man is really convinced and really, you know, sold on his own belief, that in itself is attractive to a woman. That a woman sees you that no matter how much you are tempted or tested or whatever the case may be, that your belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never wavers. That is attractive in a man. That is something that appeals to women when they see that no matter what circumstance or situation you're put in, it doesn't shake your faith. Your faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't waver. I'll give you an example. The Prophet sallallahu was traveling with some of his companions on one occasion. And they settled at a valley. And so they begin to disperse in the valley looking for trees so they can rest underneath the trees so they can benefit from the shade. So the Prophet sallallahu he found a tree and... He took his sword off and he hung his sword on a tree and he laid down underneath the tree to get some shade. He said, when I closed my eyes, he said, I heard someone standing over top of me. When I opened my eyes, the individual had the sword unsheathed, pointed at my neck. And he said, yeah, Muhammad, man minni. who is going to protect you from me now, Muhammad? The Prophet said he looked up at the individual and said, Allah, Allah. Look at the, the, the conviction. Never waver. Some of us find ourselves in those situations on a day-to-day -day basis where someone has a knife to our neck questioning our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, may, and I'm, I'm using that metaphorically. Maybe not necessarily someone having a knife literally to your neck, but situations test your conviction in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we give in. We say, oh man, I'm weak right now. You know, just make dua for me. No, make dua for yourself, man. Stop being so weak. Learn some discipline. Are we that women crazy that we can be around women and not know how to control ourselves or have any discipline? Are we 15, 16-year-old boys? Are we grown men that has passed that stage where we don't have any self-control? This is where we are. Anyone that has ever become successful in life has done so because of discipline. If you're going to save money because you're trying to buy a house or you're trying to buy this or you're trying to do anything that requires money, that requires you to be disciplined financially, to put money aside, to save money, to open up an account. And every time you get paid, you put a $500 in this account, you put this a, and after a year, it has accumulated this amount of money. And after two years, three years, and after five years, you have all of this money. This, that takes discipline. That takes discipline, financial discipline. But we're talking about physical discipline of, of our bodies, of our eyes, lowering our gaze, learning how to control our thoughts, 
when shaitan begins to whisper to us, we begin to control our thoughts about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Yatiya shaitan ila ahnikum fayakudu min khalaqa hadha, fayakudu Allah, fayakudu min khalaqa hadha, fayakudu Allah, fayakudu min khalaqa Allah. Qala idha jaa ahadakum min hadha, falyatrukhu. The Prophet said the shaitan comes to one of you and says, Who created this? And you say, Allah. He says, Who created this? You say, Allah. He said, Who created Allah? And at that very moment, you have to have enough discipline, spiritual discipline, not to allow your mind to entertain certain thoughts. The Prophet said that if any of these thoughts come to you, then leave those thoughts alone and seek refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why, why is, you know, why did Allah create me? Why am I here? Why is Allah testing me with this? I'm, I'm being obedient. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Why does Allah keep doing this to me? Why Does Allah really love me? And all these thoughts that you're playing around with in your head, the shaitan continues to whisper to you. You have to have enough discipline to seek refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to leave those thoughts alone. Discipline. So it's, it's not just, you know, physical strength but also strength of character and what there's nothing more beautiful in a man than to see him convinced of his deen because you can't convince someone else to believe in islam and to believe in allah if you're not convinced of it people feed off of your conviction when people see how convinced you are it begins to impact them and have an effect on them because they can see that no matter what circumstances, how many people have taken shahada, not because someone called them to Islam, but because they watched, they observed the Muslim practice his deen year after year after year. I've been Muslim, alhamdulillah, for 17 years. Um, and my grandmother, she jokes with me now. When I first became Muslim, right, um, I was 20 years old, right? So that says a lot about my age, right? Just gave that away. Yes. <laughs> right. So my grandmother says to me, she says, um, when I popped up at her door, knocked on the door, I'm Muslim, got my kufi on, my thobe on, I'm just living in the moment. So she said, I wonder how long that's going to last. <laughs> so I seen my grandmother about a month ago. And I said to her, I said, um, remember the statement you made to me when you saw me? She said, oh boy, shut up. Right. <laughs> I said, you know, you remember what you said to me? 17 years ago, you said, I wonder how long that's going to last. 17 years later, I'm still here in your face as a practicing Muslim. You know what I mean? And I mean, the, the reason why she didn't even want to entertain the conversation, because just by your conviction, you've made her eat her words. Eat your words. You know? And, you know, alhamdulillah, it begins to have an impact on other family members because they sit and watch. They want to see how long this is going to last. And as you be grow, you growing more in the religion. It's not like you're backpedaling, right? You're growing more in the religion. And they're seeing this and they're saying, well, it must be something about that religion. My grandmother's issue is just her issue is the same issue as Abu Talib. She knows Islam is the truth, but she don't want to give up her past lifestyle, you know. I don't want to give up my idols and the idols of my forefathers. And by idol, I mean the, the cross, Jesus, right? She don't want to give up the idol. So her issue is the issue of Abu Talib. But they know Islam is the truth. That's, but they have an internal war going on inside of them. That they don't want to abandon the religion of their forefathers and look like hypocrites all of these years. My grandfather, before, his, before he died, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, he took shahada. On his deathbed, man. On his deathbed, 
on his deathbed, he had colon cancer. And the last couple of days before his death, me and my wife used to go and we used to sneak him. He, he liked sardines and they wouldn't, he was in veterans hospital, they wouldn't serve him sardines. But he knew that I would sneak him in sardines. So my wife would make him a sardine sandwich and we would sneak in there. But the thing is, is that my, my grandmother played the role of Abu Jahl because every time she was there, we couldn't really give him dawah. Because she would always, oh, you don't talk to him about that religion. He's Christian. We're Christian. He's going to die a Christian. So we would go when she wasn't there. <laughs> so we could have just our time together. And, uh, and I said to him, you know, I said, you know, you only have a few days to live, you know, a month, give or take a month. I said, you know, if you know that there's only one God and he's the only one worthy of worship, how do you die knowing that and then die as a claiming that you're a, you're a Christian and you just start crying? I said, all you have to do is say, die on that. And at least you got a shot, man. He's just crying, crying. Well, what, did I, what do I need to do? I said, repeat after me. <laughs> he took his shahada. I never went to see him again after that because I didn't want to pressure him with anything. Let his last statement be, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. That's the last statement that I remember coming out of my grandfather's mouth. And his fate is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. His fate is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the point that I'm making is that when people see that you are convinced that conviction it, it speaks volumes uh, in terms of da'wah. And that's strength of character. Another you know, strength of character is being able to forgive. Being forgiving and having a big heart and being able to take the high road even when someone oppresses you. Right? An example of this is a story about one of the scholars of the past of the Salaf. His name was Malik ibn Dinar. فَدَّخَلَ لِسْسٌ عَلَى بَيْتِ مَالِكِ بْنِ دِنَارٌ فَمَا وَجَدَ شَيْءٍ مِنَ الدُّنْيَا broke into the house of Malik ibn Dinar. And as the scholars of the past, they used to live very simple lifestyles. Nothing extravagant, nothing, you know, very simple lives. Very simple lives. And so this thief broke into the house of Malik ibn Dinar and he was looking for something to steal and he didn't find anything. So when Malik saw him getting ready to leave out of his house, you catch a man trying to steal out of your house, right? Put yourself in that situation today. Right here in Baltimore, Maryland, he's not leaving your house alive, right? So Malik ibn Dinar, he saw the man getting ready to leave, and he said to him, Ya hadha, ma hasalta ala shay'in min dunya He said, you didn't find anything to take from the dunya here. He said, but would you like to take something from the hereafter? And the thief said, yes. I mean, because he caught you, so you're vulnerable, you're liable to listen to anything at that point. So Malik ibn Dinar told him, make wudu and pray to Raka'ah and seek Allah's forgiveness. And when he did that, when they walked out of the house together, some of Malik ibn Dinar's companions said, who is this? He said, this was a man who came to steal from me, but I stole him. <laughs> he came to steal, but I stole him. 
Meaning he came to steal something from my house, but I stole his soul. I stole his spirit because of the way that I treated him. I extended forgiveness to him. And that's strength of character. Some people don't know how to be forgiving because they believe by forgiving, especially with men. We got our egos as bigger than life, larger than life. Our egos are too big, so much so that we would die not forgiving someone as opposed to just coming to the person and saying, you know what? I forgive you for whatever wrong went on between us or whatever. The I forgive you between me and you. Your Qiyam is nothing. If you have anything in your heart against me, that's between you and Allah. But for me, I've forgiven you. I pardon you. I fought to Ank. We don't know how to do that. Some of us right now have family members that we don't speak to, haven't spoken to in years simply because one of us just can't say, you know what? I forgive you. We just don't know how to let it go. Stubborn. Because for us, it's validation. By holding on to that, our feelings are valid. Because the moment we believe that we forgive someone, then that means that, well, what about my feelings? Well, what about me? That means that you're no longer valid, right? Your validation comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not from other people. Other people don't validate you. Your validation comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But he treated him unexpectedly. He said he came in my house to steal, but I stole him because I dealt with him in a way that he wasn't anticipating. So this shows us, you know, strength of character. So this is the first quality that would make a man a perfect husband. And that is, number one, he's has kuwa to jasadiyya, strong strength, physical strength, wa to shaksiyya, and he has a strong personality, strong personality. And this more than anything is attractive to any woman. And I'm sure any woman back there would agree with that. The second quality that will make a man a perfect husband is something that was mentioned in the first ayat with Musa. And she said that the best person that you can hire is someone who is strong and, I mean, trustworthy. Someone who is trustworthy. Right? We live in a time where people have been hurt so many times. And they are afraid to go into relationships trusting people because we say we have trust issues. I have trust issues, meaning I have been let down, disappointed so many times in my life that I don't trust anybody. I don't trust anybody. There are two types of people when it comes to trust. There's a type of person that comes into a relationship and gives you 100% trust. Gives you 100%. And then they kind of let you work your way down. Right. Every mistake you make, they're subtracting from the 100 percent that they gave you of trust. And the danger with this person is that when they subtract from the trust that they gave you from the beginning, you almost never get that back because they were so freely with it from the beginning. They gave it all. They came in trusting you from the beginning. And when you start to do things that make them weary of you and make them untrusting towards you, you begin to subtract from the trust that they gave you so much so that as you work your way down, you never kind of work your way back up. Or the flip side of that is the other person who starts you at zero. I'm not giving you any trust. And then you have to work your way up. Right. You have to work your way up. So as the years go by, you try to be more transparent. You try to be open in the communication and things like this. And they start to trust you and they start to build that trust with you. All right. But the danger with that person is that um, every time you make a mistake with their trust, they bring you right back down to zero. Right. So if you have 50, 60 percent of their trust, when you do one thing wrong, they bring you back down to zero. They don't bring you down a notch. 
right? They bring you down to zero, almost as if they had never trusted you before. Right. So this is the danger with with trust. And people are looking for trust as an investment in a marriage. Right. And this is something that we should look at when we think about divorcing. Right. If you invested money into a project. Right. And you get angry with the people that you have your business partners. You're not going to just say, well, keep my investment. I'm out of here. No, you're going to stay to the end because you have invested in that. Our marriages function the same way. You don't think your marriage is an investment? Think about all of the years that you put in with this individual, right? Which is going to make it very hard for you to enjoy anyone else because you've created a comfort zone around this person. You've been with this person for so long. You know this individual in and out. That's an investment. You've invested money because you've had children, You've had a house, you've invested money into things that your whole family could enjoy. You've invested money. You've invested emotion. You've been through so many fights and arguments or whatever the case may be, and you still turn around and love one another. You've invested emotion. You've invested trust because no one knows you like your spouse. No one is going to handle your emotions, handle your feelings, handle your heart like your spouse. And this is one of the reasons why you should stay. These are the reasons why you should stay, because it's an investment. You think we're just going to throw that out the window because of one argument? You crazy. I'm here for the long haul, man. I've invested in this. I'm not going nowhere. You know, we get into those arguments and then the the argument kind of segues into, I don't know if this is working. We might want to go our separate way. No, we're not going our separate ways. We're not going nowhere. I've invested in this marriage. We are going to see this all the way through. It's an investment. It is an investment, right? And trust is part of that investment. When you invest trust into your relationship, it is a part of that. Um, But there's nothing that is more attractive to a woman than to see a man that she can trust with her heart. Someone that is not going to break her heart, right? The Prophet explained to us that the woman is fragile. She can be easily broken. The Prophet said that the woman was created from the rib and the most curved part of the rib is the top part, meaning her tongue. He said, and if you try to straighten the rib, you're going to break it. And to break it is to divorce her. For women, are easy, they are easily broken. Divorce breaks, even men breaks us. Right. So I want to give you an example between the Prophet and Aisha to show you how some of us have trust issues and how do we help build trust in our relationship by being transparent, by being open, being an open book, being transparent. You know, we're adults. I don't have nothing to hide. I don't have anything to hide. If you decide, I've, I've always been amazed at brothers who go and marry women as a second wife and never tell anybody about it. If you let somebody marry you as a second wife and they don't introduce you to the community, their family, their, anybody else, you are not a second wife. You are a mistress. Make no mistake about that. We have to stop playing around with Islamic terms. You are not a second wife. Stop saying you're in polygyny. You're not in polygyny. Right? All of the Prophet's marriages were done in public. All of them, which is why we know every single one of the women that he was married to. We know when he married them, how he married them, who they were, who their families were. We know every single thing about them. While today, brothers are marry a sister on the side somewhere. Nobody know nothing about her. Come on, man. 
How we accept such low standards in a dean that is wrought with richness? How? How do we accept such low standards, man? Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she said, لَمَّا كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ فِي لَيْلَةِ أَلَّتِي هِيَ لِي جَاءَ فَفَتَحَ الْبَابِ رُوَيْدًا رُوَيْدًا وَخَلَأَ نَعْلَهُ وَمَشَى رُوَيْدًا رُوَيْدًا حَتَّى يَحْدُثَ النَّعْلِ سَوْتًا وَوَضَعَ جَنْبَهُ وَيْدًا رُوَيْدًا رُوَيْدًا عَلَى الْفِرَاشِ فَمَا هُوَ إِلَّا أَنْ وَضَعَ جَنْبَهُ عَلَى الْفِرَاشِ قَامَ رُوَيْدًا رُوَيْدًا وَأَخَذَ نَعْلَهُ رُوَيْدًا رُوَيْدًا وَمَشَى رُوَيْدًا رُوَيْدًا وَفَتَحَ الْبَابِ رُوَيْدًا رُوَيْدًا ثُمَّ انطَلَقَ Aisha رضي الله تعالى The word رُوَيْدًا as you hear that it means to do something quietly without making any noise So she said when it was my night as you know his wives they had to share their nights with they had to split their nights up between the co-wives so Aisha said, when it was my night for the Prophet ﷺ to stay with me, um, I was in the bed, sleep. She said, so the Prophet ﷺ opened the door to walk in, ruwaydin, ruwaydin, very quietly. She said, then he walked in, took off of his sandals, and laid his cloak on the bed, and then laid on the bed, ruwaydin, ruwaydin, very quietly. She said, and then when he laid down next to me, she said, I felt him get up, ruwaydin, ruwaydin, quietly. And he grabbed his sandals, ruwaydin, ruwaydin, quietly. And then he opened the door, ruwaydin, ruwaydin, quietly. And he walked out towards the baqir, walked out towards the graveyard, ruwaydin, ruwaydin, quietly. Right? So it might look like he's being sneaky, right? If, if we were to do that today, right? You put your phone on silent. <laughs> you close the door very lightly. You're like, why are you being sneaky? <laughs> so, but we'll see why the Prophet ﷺ did that. Right? He's going to explain to Aisha why he did all of that. But in the meanwhile, the woman is watching you. Right? He thought Aisha was asleep. She was asleep, which is why she's narrating the whole hadith to us. She wasn't asleep at all. Right? As many of us, we have to understand that women are very perceptive. They see everything. Woe be to the man who thinks that he can outsmart his woman. <laughs> You're sadly mistaken. All we have to do is think back to our mothers. Did you ever get away with anything with your mother? <laughs> Sometimes she found out about stuff. You're like, how did you know that? <laughs> How did you find out about that? Like, we used to think our mother had super senses. Like, how did you know? Your wife is no different than your mother in that regard. She's still the same species, the same human being. She's a female. They know everything. They watch everything. Because for them, they're looking for that trust. They're looking for things that will help them love you more and trust you more. Or the opposite you know, back away from you or to be more withdrawn with their feelings. They're not going to let their feelings go in a situation or to a person that is not going to, you know, handle that with care. So she said that I put on my clothes, right? She's going to go follow the Prophet ﷺ. She said, فَقُمْتُ وَرَأَهُ وَتَقَنَّعْتُ إِزَارِي حَتَّى وَجَدْتَهُ عِنْدَ الْبَقِيَةِ She said, so I hurried up and I put on my slip. Right? She put on the, her 
clothing that goes under the overgarment, but she ran out and forgot to put on her overgarment and her kimar. <laughs> this shows you like she's in a fit of jealousy. She's not even paying attention that she went outside and she wasn't even covered. Right. So she said, I went outside and I followed behind him and I saw him standing at the gate of the bakia of the graveyard. She said, for Rafa Ayadahu, for Yarafa Ayadahu, Yadehi, Wayakfiduha, Yakfiduhuma. He says, she says, so I saw him raise his hands and then put them down. And he did this three times. He raised his hands and he put them down. He raised his hands and then he put them down. She said, Thumman Harafa, Rajian Ilbait. She said, then he turned around and started walking back towards the house. She said, She said, so I turned around and I started walking back to the house. She said, She said, so he started walking faster, so I started walking faster. She said, She said, so he started to walk quickly, and I started to walk quickly. And he started to run, and I started to run. She said, فَدَّخَلْتُ غُرْفَ وَدَّخَلْتُ تَحْتَ الْلِحَاحِ الْلِحَاحِ لَكِنْ أَنْفَاسَهَا لَا زَالَتْ مُتَلَاحِقَةِ فَدَّخَلَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ فَوَجَدَ الْلِحَاحِ يَرْتَفِعْ وَيَنْخَفِعْ مَعَ أَنْفَاسِهَا فَقَالَتْ مَالَكِ يَا عَائِشَةِ فَقَالَتْ لَا شَيْءٍ so Aisha says, so I hurried up and I got back to the house before he did. And I jumped in the bed and I pulled the covers over me. She said, but I was breathing hard. I couldn't stop myself from breathing hard. So the Prophet ﷺ entered the room and he saw the cover going up and down, up and down because of her breathing hard. Right. So he asked, now mind you, when he left, he thought she was asleep. And then he returns and the cover's going up and down, up and down. Right. So he asked Aisha, he said, Maliki, Aisha. He said, Aisha, what is wrong with you? So she said, as women always say, nothing. It's nothing wrong. Right? Nothing. And so the Prophet said, He said, either you are going to tell me what's going on, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Al-Latif Al-Khabir is going to tell me what's going on. Unfortunately, as men, we don't have that luxury, right? <laughs> it would be a beautiful thing if we could just call on Allah to expose, you know, the plots that our women, you know, do towards us. And this, this is true. The Prophet Sallallahu when he told uh, Aisha to go tell Abu Bakr to lead the Salah, and Aisha didn't want Abu Bakr to lead the Salah because she was like, he cries too much, we can't hear the Qur'an. So when, he saw, when she saw Hafsa coming, she said, go ask the Prophet to let Umar lead the Salah. Now, mind you, Hafsa didn't know the previous instruction that he gave to Aisha, right? So she's setting her up for failure, right? So Hafsa goes, you know, oblivious. Said, why don't you let Umar lead the Salah? He said, subhanAllah, go tell Abu Bakr to lead the Salah. He said, you women are like the women of Yusuf. In the the kunna adhim. That the plot of you women is serious, man. Y'all always scheming. You're always scheming, right? You know. So, you know, always be aware of that. But the Prophet Sallallahu he said, Aisha, either you are going to tell me or Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala Al-Latif Al-Khabir is going to tell me. So Aisha said, well, when I saw you get up and you grabbed your sandals and you walked out the house, you know, quietly, you know, I thought that you were going to one of your other wives' house. Look at the insecurity. SubhanAllah.
And the Prophet ﷺ said, the reason why I got up quietly was because I didn't want to wake you up. I didn't want you to wake up and not notice me gone. You know, the Prophet ﷺ, he used to instruct us, you know, and you send them salam and la yuqidhu anna'im that you, when you give, when you walk into the house, you to give the salams so quietly that you don't wake the person that is asleep and the person that is woke can hear you. The person that is woke can hear you. So it was from that bad, you know what I mean? It was from that perspective that he didn't want to wake up. It wasn't that he was being sneaky. It was that he didn't want to leave her there by herself if, as long as she stayed asleep. So she said... You know, I thought when I heard you grab your sandals and you walked out the door quietly, I thought you were going to one of your other wives' house. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Auntie, He said, so you were the black shadow that I saw in front of me moving all fast? <laughs> she said, he said to her, she, he, the Prophet ﷺ said, did you really think that Allah and his messenger would, you know, would be untrusting towards you, would, would deceive you? That it's your night and I'm going to sneak off and go to somebody else's house? Did you really believe that I would do that to you? But look at the transparency. When a woman thinks it's one thing, sometimes we feel like, I don't have to explain myself. I'm a grown man. We throw that out there, right? You're, I'm a grown man, right? You don't have to throw that out there. You know, everybody knows that you're a grown man, right? But we'll say very quickly, I'm a grown man. I don't have to explain myself to you, right? But explaining yourself is not necessarily, you know, infringing on, you know, the fact that you're a grown man. But transparency builds trust when you're transparent. Now, I'm not saying that now you go home and give your wife the password to, you know, certain accounts. That's not what I'm saying in the spirit of transparency, right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't let your wives flip the script on you. Don't let your wives listen to this lecture and then see you later and say, well, in the spirit of transparency, it would be a good idea if you gave me those passwords, right? No, there should be some privacy. We, we should have some privacy in our, in our relationships, right? You shouldn't walk into the bathroom on your wife just unannounced, right? And vice versa. There should be some, we should have some levels of privacy in our marriage, Right. But also when someone is feeling insecure and ask you, you know, or, or make comments that indicate that they are insecure, it would be a good idea to be transparent at that moment. So you help them build trust. So the Prophet Wasallam, he said to Aisha, he said, Inna rabbaki he said, the reason why I got up and walked out to the graveyard was because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Angel Jibril to inform me to go out to the graveyard and make dua for the people that were in the graveyard. That's why I got up and left. It wasn't that I was creeping off or sneaking off somewhere else with someone else. He said, and I knew that it was you because Jibril, when he saw you outside without your overgarment on, Jibril hid behind the tree because the modesty that he has for you. SubhanAllah. And so Aisha said, trying to change the, the, the discourse, trying to change the course of the conversation. She said, well, well, what is the dua that we're supposed to make for the people in the grave? <laughs> and the scholars mentioned that this was hikmah from Aisha. When she learned that she was wrong, she just tried to turn the conversation to something else. Well, what was the dua that we're supposed to make for the people in the grave? As if we never even had the previous discussion, right? 
right? And women are famous for that. When they know they're wrong, they're never going to say, I'm wrong, right? They're always going to turn the conversation, well, you know I love you, right? You know, it's like, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China, right? All right, so Aisha and all the Allah and this is hikmah, that when you see the conversation, you know, getting heavy, to switch the conversation to something else. Switch it to something else so that you don't have to kind of wallow in the conversation. We get it, right? And there was another situation. This wasn't the first time that Aisha kind of felt some insecurity and accused the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam of something, right? There was a hadith that was mentioned in Sahih Muslim. Where Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she said, Kana nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bijanibi. Bijanibi. Um, she said, Tahannantu, Tahannantuhu, Falam ajidhu, Fadanantu ennahu dhahaba li ba'di nisa'ihi fakumtu, Fawaka'at yadi ala kadamehi, Mansubatani wa huwa sajidun yakulu, A'udhu bi ridaka min sakhatik ila akhir. فَقُلْتُ بِأَبِي أَنْتَ وَأُمِّي يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ إِنَّكَ لَفِي شَأْنٍ وَأَنَا فِي شَأْنٍ آخَرٍ Aisha رضي الله تعالى عنها She said one time the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم was with me She said and I rolled over in the bed and I felt him missing She said so as I got up on my way out I felt my arm felt his leg and I felt his feet. So as it's dark there, mind you, they didn't have lights or whatever. They only had, you know, the candle, right? So when they blow the candle out, it's completely dark, right? So she said, I'm feeling around and I can feel his two feet. But the, the way that his feet are, I can feel them up as if he's in sujood. So she says, so I felt more of his body and I could feel, subhanAllah, he's in sujood. She getting ready to put on her clothes, go out and go look for him because she thought that he was with one of his other wives and here he is at the edge of the bed in sujood. La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. Right? So when the Prophet ﷺ finished and she said, I could hear him making dua, I guess he started to raise his voice with dua when he's Felt her feeling on him, right? You know, sometimes you're in the room praying and your wife is calling you, honey, honey, and you start raising your voice with the salah just to let her know that you're praying, right? So he started making the dua. He said, Oh Allah, I seek refuge with your pleasure from your anger to the end of the hadith. So when the Prophet ﷺ finished the, pray the prayer, she turned to him and she said, by my, uh, you know, may my mother and my father be a ransom for you, O Messenger of Allah. She said, I was thinking one thing and you was in a whole other situation. Basically, I was thinking that you were out with your other wives and here you are in sujood, right? So this shows you that there were a number of occasions where Aisha's insecurity kind of, you know, you know, exposed its ugly head. But the Prophet Wasallam never blamed her for that. He never criticized her for that. I mean, she was the youngest of all of his wives, the only one that didn't have any children. You know, there was a lot of responsibility on her. You know, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of weight on her shoulders. And him understanding that he was always, you know, aware of those things and he never put more pressure on her to change those aspects about her. He corrected it when it needed to be corrected, but he didn't find fault with her. He accepted that 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 was part of her character. So being trusting, you know, being someone that a woman can trust is definitely um, a quality that is attractive today. You know, we have to learn how to be transparent. We have to learn to stop hiding stuff and just be be who you are. There's somebody for everybody. If someone doesn't like a particular quality about you, trust me, you'll find someone else that does. But I'm not going to lie to you and I'm not going to, you know, 
make things look other than what it is just to appease you. I am who I am. I'm a full package. You take me as I am or you leave me as I am. Bottom line. You know, but these are the qualities that we want to teach our children not to be sneaky, not to be, you know, um, I don't know if we have time for one more. Um, I'll just breeze through it really quickly. That way we covered three. And in the next lecture, inshallah, we'll cover three more. Um, number three is to learn how to be perceptive as men. Some of us as men, we are we live in the oblivion of our own ignorance. We know absolutely nothing about women and how they function and why they do the things they do and why they make the comments they make, why they make the facial expressions they make, because we don't we're detached. We don't pay attention. We don't pay attention. Women have certain signs. And if you're married to a woman long enough, you learn how to read those signs. You know when she's angry. You know when she's upset. You know when she's happy. You know what pleases her. You know what makes her angry. You you learn these things about her. As one brother mentioned to me, when you come home, you check the temperature. Check the temperature of your house. Don't just come home because you had a long day at work. And why is this here? Why is that here? You know, and your wife has this look on her face and you just totally ignoring all of the signs. Check the temperature of your home when you walk in. Right. Or you're going to walk into, you know, you're going to walk into something that you weren't prepared for. Right. So the Prophet was very savvy when it came to understand. He was very perceptive. He used to watch his spouse, watch his wives. And he knew the things that bothered them. He knew the things that made them happy. Right. Some of us have been married for five, ten years and we still find it difficult to read our wives. Why is that difficult? Why are you so detached from your household that you can't read the signs? Some of us are very attached to our homes. We know when something is wrong with our children. With a moment you step into the home, you can feel the atmosphere. You can feel it because you have that connection with your household. You know when something is wrong. Right. So the Prophet, he said to Aisha one day, he said, as Aisha narrated, she said, call it. قال لي رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إني لا أعلم إذ كنت علي غضبة وإذ كنت كنت علي راضية فقالت عائشة فقلت من أين تعرف ذلك يا رسول الله قال إذا أنت إذا أنت كنت علي راضية فإنك تقولين لا ورب محمد وَإِذْ كُنْتِ عَلَيَّ غَضْبًا فَقُلْتِ لَا وَرَبِّ إِبْرَاهِيمٌ فَقَالَتْ عَائِشَةٌ أَجَلْ يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ لَكِنْ وَاللَّهِ لَا أَهْجُرَ إِلَّا إِسْمَكَ The Prophet ﷺ said to Aisha, Aisha is narrating, she said the Messenger of Allah ﷺ said to me one day, Oh Aisha, I know when you're angry with me and I know when you're pleased with me. He's letting her know that I'm watching you and I can see a pattern in your behavior so much so that I know when you're pleased with me and I know when you're angry with me. By a show of hands, how many of you brothers are married? Okay, uh, maybe I should have did this. How many of you brothers are not married? How many of you brothers? All right, keep your hands up. Man, you're about 10 years old. What you got your hand up for? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you know, I like, I, I dig your swag. You ready to get married? I got you. <laughs> Give it another eight years, inshallah. Give it another eight years. You know, we, we, you know, getting you married will be, you know, a piece of cake. Uh, by show of hands, how many brothers in here are not married? All right. So that's about four, five, four brothers. 
All right, how many of you brothers, keep your hands up, how many of you that are not married are looking to get married? Okay. All of you. All right, so why we can't make this happen? How many sisters in the back that are not married? No, I'm not playing. I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. How many sisters in the back are not married? How many of you are looking for marriage? Okay, we got the same amount of brothers right here looking to get married. Why can't we make this happen? No, I'm, I'm dead serious. Why can't we? Why is this so hard to make this happen? All right, so after this lecture is over, right, the sisters that are back there that are looking to get married, I need your name, your, your Wally's number, right? And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make that happen for you, right? I'm solution-oriented. Like, I'm not playing no games. We, it should be nobody in our match here that is not married. We have a no-single policy, right? No singles. Everybody's getting married, man. <laughs> so the Prophet ﷺ, he said to Aisha, I know when you're angry with me, and I know when you're pleased with me. She said, how is that? She said, man, ain't that. How did you figure that out, right? Because it wasn't normal. It wasn't normal in that society for men to pay that close attention to women. That wasn't that type of society, right? You know, even now, men might think that it's a little, you know, a little feminine to be that attached and that connected to a woman that you know all of these aspects about her. But that helps to bring that cohesion to your marriage because you know when to hold them and you know when to fold them. You know when to engage, when not to engage, right? You know how to pick and choose your battles. So Aisha said, men ain't a tidy for that. Where did you learn this? How did you find this out? The Prophet ﷺ, he said, when you are pleased with me, in your conversations, when you're in conversation, you'll say, La wa rabbi Muhammad. No, I swear by the Lord of Muhammad. Right? <laughs> Similar to today, when your wife is fond of you and she's pleased with you. Yeah, because my husband said, and my husband, your husband this and your husband that, but when you're angry, don't even mention that man's name around me. I don't even want to hear his name. <laughs> right? Aisha was no different. He said, when you're angry with me, you say, no, I swear by the Lord of Ibrahim. <laughs> you don't even mention my name. <laughs> when you're pleased with me, it's, oh, and the Lord of Muhammad. I swear by the Lord of Muhammad. But when you're angry with me, you say, I swear by the Lord of Ibrahim. I don't even mention your name. And Aisha, anha, she said, you are exactly right. She said, but I swear by Allah, I only boycott your name. Meaning I still give you your rights, even though I'm angry with you. And the only thing I boycott is your name. Right? And that's a sign of maturity from this young woman. As some of you women, you get angry with your husband. You're not cooking for him. There's no intimacy going on. Ain't nothing happening. He's sleeping on the couch. Don't, you know, like we have to learn how to be more mature with our emotions. Even though you're angry with a person, you never want your husband to leave out of the house, you know, sexually in a rut. You know, you don't want him to leave out the house like that. You want your husband, every time he step foot out of your house, he's satisfied. Because if you don't do it, there's a ton of women out here in this world that will do it. Don't do that. We don't punish people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punishes. And we don't use intimacy as a weapon to punish our spouse. So now because we get into an argument and your husband comes and grabs you from behind, like, get off me. No, no, ain't nothing happening. It's like, really? Like, you're that angry with me that I, when I need to satisfy my desires, like, that's off, it's off the table? The Prophet ﷺ, I want you to be aware of this hadith. The Prophet ﷺ said, any woman who her husband calls her to the bed and she refuses, the malaika, the angels curse you until fajr. So if you okay with being cursed by the angels until fajr, 
just because you are angry or upset with your spouse and you don't want to be intimate with them. That is his haq, that is his right. You don't have a, a right to deny him that because you're angry. And Aisha anha, the level of maturity, she said, yes, I'm angry with you, but the only thing I boycott is your name. I don't boycott anything else. I still give you your haq. And we have to learn how to be like that. Even with one another as brothers, we have to learn how to be angry with one another and still give each other a haq. I'm angry with you, I have an issue with you, but when I see you and you give me the salams, I'm going to return the salams to you, I'm going to give you your haq. We're not that even, like, African Americans, we're just so emotional, man. We are an emotional people, and we let our emotions become our navigation system, like the Quran and the Sunnah is out the window. It's like, where's the deen at? Because you are caught up in your feelings, now all of a sudden, deen is out the window. So now I don't, I don't get the salams because you're angry with me, you upset with me, or oh, I need three days. <laughs> really? <laughs> you need three days from another man? Like you, I mean, like I would expect that to go on between husband and wife. Like From another man? Like You just squash it. We agree to disagree or whatever the case may be. I'm angry with you, but I'm going to still give you your hop. If I seen your car pulled over on the, on the side of the street, you had a flat tire because we just had an argument and match it. I'm not going to ride by you and just leave you there. We have to learn how to be more mature with our emotions and stop letting them be the navigation system for us, but allow the Quran and the Sunnah to be our navigation. So these are three qualities of the perfect husband, and that is number one, strength, and that is strength, physical strength as well as strength of character. Number two, uh, being uh, trustworthy, being someone that the woman can trust with her heart, and number three, being perceptive. To know the politics of women and to be able to be perceptive about when your woman is happy, when she's not happy, and be able to deal with her accordingly. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. I don't know if there was any questions or comments about what was was presented. Uh, we'll take a few minutes, inshallah ta'ala. Um, after this is over, we'll break into Salatul Maghrib and uh, um, Salatul Asr. And then after Salatul Asr, I'll finish the other three that I have. And then after Maghrib, we'll have a, a different lecture. Yes. Walaikum salam. Uh, I thought I got four. Hold on one second. Um, one of the sisters, get all of those names and numbers back there for me. You thought I forgot. You working on it? Okay, make that happen for me. No, don't email it. I want it written on paper. I want it in my hand, tangibly. I want to hold it, right? We're going to make that happen, inshallah. Yes. But strength was broken into two categories. So strength is one. No, I just use forgiving as an example of strength of character, being able to forgive someone. I was using those as examples of strength of character.